This morning we have the joy and privilege to hear from a friend of mine that I met, it's been a couple of years ago or so now. Um, Daryl Williamson uh, is uh, on the leadership council for the Gospel Coalition. Uh, We've participated in their conferences a number of times over the years, and a number of the ladies have gone to the ladies' conference uh, that they have uh, as well, Um, and and excellent. But uh, Daryl's a friend, and from the first time I met him, I knew I wanted to be his friend, and I hoped that he might be willing to be mine, and um, it's always a big question mark in my mind, but... Um, he's faithful to the gospel. He's faithful to the people of God that he serves as a pastor. Um, and um, I, I just am excited for you to hear from him. Uh, as we entered into this series, I knew that here was a man who had a whole lot more experience and knowledge in this area than I did. And uh, we'd be foolish to not hear from him uh, as we engage the, this topic of race and reconciliation. And so... Um, with that, I if, welcome Daryl, if you would come, and then receive him. Amen. Gulf Coast, it is good to be here with you this morning. Amen. I am, uh, I'm excited, I'm honored to be here. I am privileged. Um, Jerry is a friend, and, and, and Pastor Jerry, let me just say this, that, that my wife and I, we love museums. So I just I don't want you to know that, that, that we tend to walk around and then we look at all of the displays, and so uh, just, uh, just, just so you know, uh, when, when we travel, we, we look for the museums, like, where, where are the museums? And so for those of you who heard last week's message, uh, you know what I'm talking about. And speaking of last week's message... Wow, that was one of the best messages I've heard. Amen. Amen. Praise God. On the urgency of justice. And, uh, and brother, it can be very perilous, um, as, you, as you mentioned. Um, a lot of folks don't like to hear that. And I appreciate, appreciate your boldness and your, your, your courage. Uh, I'm excited for this series that uh, Pastor Jerry is leading you guys through. Uh, we are good friends. Uh, I'm thankful for that. Also good friends with uh, dear brother Dave, Dave Wilson. And um, brother, I, I am thankful for you and your friendship. And I think we met before Pastor Jerry and I did. And uh, so very grateful for your heart as leaders for a holistic representation as to who God is. God is on mission. He is a God on mission. He's not just an observer. He's not just passively watching. He is an engaged God. And you guys are, are compelled to understand the profile of that engagement. And so I'm thankful for you. And, uh, and it's a privilege to be a partner with you uh, in this gospel calling. I'm here with my wife. My wife is here in the front. Just kind of wave your hand, babe. I don't hesitate to say, she's heard me say, say it before, so I hope she's not tired of hearing it. I married up, and, uh, and so I've, I've said this before, but I did. I, I, I don't know what I said to her. Maybe I somehow, you know, I don't know, spooked her or something. <laughs> that caused her to say, you know, I'll marry that guy. 
And, uh, and so we've been married for, for 31 years, and uh, very, very thankful for that. And so she's my, my masked crusader, and, uh, and so you'll see her with, with the mask on. Don't worry about that. She's not a threat to you. And, uh, and so, uh, so she just recently uh, went through a kidney transplant, and, is, uh, and we're thankful for her progress and recovery. And, uh, but she is on immunosuppressive drugs, and so she's just wanting to be cautious about, about that. And so uh, very delighted, as always, to, to have her uh, here with me. Uh, from our fellowship, I, I'm delighted that I have uh, uh, Amin and Jasmine Hudson in the house with me today. Yeah. Praise God. Amin, and this is not an overstatement, is one of the most gifted and equipped uh, um, young leaders and thinkers uh, we have in the American church today. And, uh, and I know that it's not an overstatement. And I know for those who know him, they know that's not an overstatement as well. Uh, his dear wife, uh, Jasmine, is a sweet and godly woman. I'm delighted to, to have them here uh, with us today. And, and my dear friend, Carlos Mercado. And uh, God bless you, brother. <laughs> Carlos is also, he, he's a, a wonderful colleague and yoke fellow in the gospel. He serves as a leader at Building 28 Church in Clearwater. And, uh, and so he and I talk a lot about these issues of justice and racial reconciliation, racial justice, really to talk about reconciliation entails in our country talking about justice. There's no way to escape those two coming together. So I'm thankful uh, for, for Carlos. Is there anybody else I can thank in here? Anyone else I can maybe? I thank you, brother, for being here. And... Um, so, um, so let, let's turn our attention to the word. I want to ask you to meet me in Ruth chapter 1. So we're going to focus on verses 14 through 17, but for, the, for the, the vital, God bless you, the vital necessity of context, I'd like to, to read from verse 6 through verse 18. I'm going to read in the NIV because I think that's, that's the translation that, that Pastor Jerry typically preaches from. And I'm going to invite you also to stand with me as we stand before our God and his word. Verse 6, when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who would become your husbands? Return home. My daughters, I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you. 
because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this, verse 14, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. And so in this, our our third, your third um, instance in the series Race and Reconciliation, our thought this morning is the extraordinary identity of covenant love. Let's go before our God. Father God, I thank you for this series. I thank you, Lord, for what you're doing through it. The mere fact that you brought this about, Lord, says much about your presence in this fellowship. God, it also says much about where you want to take this church, the legacy of missional engagement, the legacy of righteousness slash justice that you want to see abide here. And and not just so that it can abide in this fellowship, God, but that it might flow out into this community. Father, you see St. Petersburg. That's why you put it on Pastor Jerry's heart to do this series, not just to preach something interesting and provocative, but because you are on the move. So, God, would you move today? Help, Lord, overcome my limits. God, I pray I would not be a draw. I pray that I would not be repulsive. God, I pray that you would be seen, Lord Jesus. It is in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. The book of Ruth is a fascinating, glorious little book. And before we get into our text, let me just say that as I was preparing, it's pretty clear that a lot of commentators are trying to figure out one of the big issues of biblical studies is what is this glorious little beautiful book about? Which is to say, why is it written? And so, so many folks think that perhaps the issue here is that the writer is trying to, in so many ways, authenticate the reign of David. That, that's what some folks think. So if you, if you read through this, you know that by the end we see that Ruth is the mother of David's grandfather. And so if, if you are in ancient Israel and, and David is reigning, or perhaps right after the, the, the kingdoms were reunited under David, and, uh, and, and so, and so the, the question is, perhaps the purpose here is to authenticate that David is the rightful king, that God brought him about providentially. This is why we had David. See, he was not just anointed, he was actually God-determined. And then some people think that actually, some scholars believe, that it's because David brought in so many foreigners 
into Israel and that served with him. A lot of men that fought with him were Philistine, in fact. That perhaps the issue is that the goal of this book is to authenticate the presence of outsiders in Israel, as it were, even David's great-grandmother was a Moabite. I agree with Dave Chappell, who writes a lot about preaching, is that the real question for us to ask in any text is what is the Holy Spirit's agenda in this passage? Why did he do this? And I think this is an important way to think about hermeneutics which is not first and foremost to say as important as it is to understand the motive of the author. What was the author thinking? I also want to ask the question, what was the spirit of God thinking? Might I surmise his motivation? And I want to suggest to you before we get into our text is that the spirit's motivation here is to, is to profile for us, is to show us what does it look like? What does it mean to be in covenant community? What are its attributes? What is its weightiness? What is the gravitas of covenant? How far does it go? Is it natural or is it more than that? I think I want to suggest to you that that is the Spirit's motivation, if I could be so bold, as I look at the text and what this thing says, what we see most profoundly is not David. What we see is an amazing profile of covenant love. And by extension, covenant identity. The narrative for the book of Ruth introduces some surprising elements very quickly. And so if you were an an Israelite reader, you would be surprised by the the story. As you discovered that um, Abimelech and his wife, as they were experiencing famine in Judah, that they left to go to all places to Moab. And so Moab, Israel's fierce rival, how would they, is it, is it possible that, that, that this Israelite family, this Judean family could find a home in Moab of all places? And we see that they did, that they actually got settled there. And even after Bimelech died, apparently they found a home amongst the Moabites. The two sons had Moabite wives. And as we get to the end of verse 5, we realize that some startling things are going on here. As it is, not only did Abimelech die, but the two sons, after 10 years of marriage, die childless. Which causes you to think, God, what's going on here? Something's wrong here. And so the overarching theme of this narrative is one of questioning, God, do you see this? What what is the issue here? What does it mean to have a relationship with you at all? Is this redemptive? We leave Judah for, for famine and die childless. But what's interesting here is as, as we push into verse 6, which is where we just read, it's very obvious to us that the Spirit of God has done something amazing despite what's going on here, and we're not quite sure what to make out of this theologically. As we look at verse 6, one of the things that we see is the Lord is showing us that he has forged an uncommon bond between Naomi and her Moabite daughters. Look what God has done. Look at this love. 
Naomi rightly says to them, she says, listen, 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 my daughters, you guys can still move on. It's not too late for you. You you can actually still have practical meaning and purpose in your lives, that there's still something else for you. And then when you look at their response in the CSB, it says this, it says that we insist on returning with you. I think this is compelling because all we see, the only thing that binds them is the depth and strength of their relationship affection. That's it. The only thing that binds them is the strength and depth of their love. And Naomi tries to introduce something practical here. She wants them to understand, look at Verse 13, she says, no, my daughters. She's pushing back against their affection out of her own affection, out of her love for them. She says, no, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Man, there's tremendous theological tension here. Has God's hand turned against Naomi? Is she right? Should she rightly be called Mara or bitterness? Has God assigned her bitterness of soul? Is that true? Man, there's so much in this passage. (laughs) Just to understand in the ways of God's grace. How does God's grace unfold? It's not even on our agenda today. It's It's not in my notes. That God's grace does surprising, sometimes unwanted, sometimes unlikable things. But that flowers into something beautiful. But we want to focus right now on the response of these Moabite women. Because they show us, I want to suggest to you, two good ways. And we'll use this as a framework for working through this text and reflecting on our main uh, theme. They give us two responses we want to look at. Both of these responses that they give, though different, are good. Both of these responses, neither of their responses are condemned in the text. And I think one reason why that's the case is because it's important that, that they, number one, not be condemned because it's not really condemnable. It's actually very understanding, but it gives the Spirit of God this, this platform to elevate one response. So there's one good way of thinking about who we are or our identity as based on who God created us to be. Who are we naturally? Who are we created for? In my creation, in God's creation vision. God has a creation vision for the world. If you think about what we see in Genesis chapter 1, we see a profile for all of creation. There are good things that God envisioned for the animal kingdom. There are good things that God envisioned for the plant kingdom. God envisioned wonderful things for creation, and those things God said are good. And so this is one source of our identity Who are we created to be? But another good way of thinking about this, and we see this in the text, is based on who God redeemed us to be. We don't have time to do it right now, but if we had time to look at this biblically, theologically, 
is that you see in Scripture two movements of God that are distinct but are related. One is God's creative movement. For example, the family, as important as the family is, is a part of God's created movement. And then there is God's redemptive movement, which is what God is doing in redemption. And and so really, in so many ways, the atomic unit of God's uh, redemptive movement is the church, is the ecclesia. And so these two things come together. Both are good, but God is showing us that there are two different identities that we have. And so let's look at these two things. And so I, I want to I reflect on the text by going through these two things and then take a step back and for us to then use that to reflect on our main purpose for this series. Here's our first thought, our identity. Who God created us to be. Look at verse 14. Orpah's response is preceded what we saw in verse 13 by Naomi's, Naomi's loving and wise instruction. It was not just loving, it was also wise. It made sense. She says, it's more bitter for me than you. She's saying, listen, look at what's going on in my life. You don't want to be a part of this. Do you see what God has done? Just open your eyes Step back for that because from, from you, for you, there is still hope to live a full and happy life. Then she gives a theological reason again saying, listen, God has turned against me. So, but he's not against you. And saints, let me just say this as an aside. When things happen in our lives, don't beat yourself up for asking, Lord, are you somehow against me? Because in your natural self, that is an understandable response. Lord, what does this mean? And this is Naomi's response. Her words are harsh, but bless you. (laughs) But motivated by deep love and acknowledging a harsh reality. She says, I want verse 8 and 9. I want the Lord to show you kindness based on the kindness that you've shown me. I see the virtue in what you've done. You could have left me. You've been justified to leave me right away, but you stay with me. May God bless you. And we can appreciate the weight of this moment because in verse 14, after Naomi reiterates this, they weep loudly. I want you to feel that moment. That moment when reality impresses itself upon you. When you, can't de- you cannot deny what you're in. You can't imagine it away. Putting your head in the sand is not enough. And it breaks you. There, 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 there is a, a place where your emotion, your heart cannot withstand the weight of reality. And that's what we see here in verse 14. It all came crashing down in Naomi's reasoning connected with Orpah. She weeps, but then she kisses Naomi goodbye. She loves her. But there are limits. And I think it's important that we recognize that these limits that we see here have an ethical boundary. It would be wrong for Naomi to expect her daughters-in-law to, her daughters-in-law to stay. 
it would be an injustice, a travesty on their lives for them to remain. It makes sense. Don't waste your life, Orpah. All good people would advise them. You yourselves likely would advise them to go. Give me a moment here. Friends, most of the advice and counsel that you're going to receive and perhaps also give, let me say it again, most of the thinking about what you should do about the situation and circumstances that you will be confronted with in your life, most of that will simply be of common wisdom. It will be good advice, but it's going to be simple, common advice. And let me make this very clear. Not everything, hear me, please. You can receive good advice that's not godly advice. It can be wise, just not redemptive. It may make sense. It's just not consistent with Jesus. And, and, and so when, when, when the, the, the one who was going to follow Jesus, give me a moment here, when he said to Jesus, okay, Jesus, I will follow you, but first let me go say goodbye to my family, that's a wise thing to do. Uh, uh, it would be unwise for me to call my wife days later and say, I'm hanging out with Jesus. I know you hadn't seen me in three days, but I'm with Jesus. So that's wise. It's just not godly if Jesus is there because Jesus is first. And likewise, give me a moment here. I'm just going to say this quickly and then press on. There are good reasons, saints of God, to have black and white churches and Latino churches. There are good reasons for them. There are good reasons to bring people together who have a lot in common, who have the same stories, who grew up listening to the same music, who like the same food. The, the potluck is not controversial. <laughs> you don't create any problems. Avoiding conflict is wise. It's just not God's agenda. And so, so there is a wisdom that is redemptive that is not the wisdom that is out of creation. And so, so our identity, is nothing wrong with our identity in creation, but God has something more. Our identity, who God redeemed us to be. Look at verse, the second part of verse 14. It says, but Ruth clung to her. For Ruth, going back to her people and their gods was unthinkable. She was no longer the old Ruth. The die had been cast. Her identity is changed. She was no longer merely a Moabite. She understood she was not an Israelite. She was now, hear me here, a Moabite in covenant community with an Israelite. Her ethnicity was not removed, but it was recast in an identity that surpasses the cultural identity of both Moab and Israel. Let's look at the text. Ruth clung to her. Her extraordinary clinging is contrasted with Orpah's understanding, kissing goodbye. The Hebrew here, it, it, it implies much. It is anchored in a resolute loyalty and deep affection. 
So this is the term that's used in Genesis 2.24, depending, depending on your translation, where it says leave and cleave, right? So that leave and cleave or cling. And so this is saying what the Hebrew entails is that the man is placing his new covenant loyalty with his wife over the natural loyalty to his parents. That this new covenant loyalty exceeds what came naturally. This is God's economics of covenant love. Look at verse 16 through 17. Ruth profiles for us what covenant identity or redeemed identity looks like. How it introduces something new, strange, but beautiful, unthinkable, apart from the power of covenant love. Look at the text. She says, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you will go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. She is saying that my home is not based on location. It's based on relationship. That it is not about where we live, that's the issue at all. It doesn't matter, Naomi, if we're nomadic. It doesn't matter if we give back to Judah. My home is with you. And so where you go, with the, if, you, if you go there, I'm going. If you stay there, I'm staying. My home is defined not by anything about the place where we are, but who I'm there with. Give me a moment here. I think this gives us great insight of the nature of the kingdom of God. Jesus made it very clear to his disciples, don't think about the kingdom of God as a place or something that you're going to see or say, there it is over the hill or something like that, because that's not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, he said, is within you or it's among you. He emphasized that the kingdom of God is about the assembly of God's people. We don't know where literally the kingdom is, but the Lord tells us who the kingdom is, that the kingdom is where Jesus is. Oh, I love that. Give me a moment here. I love that scene in Revelation 21 when we look up and we see the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city coming down. But it's not a city, is it? It's a people. And so we are, we are the new Jerusalem. It is the people of God. It is not the location. It is not what the landscape looks like. It's what the love feels like that defines where God's people live. She goes on further and she says, your people will be my people, your God, my God. Give me a second here. She renounces her ethnic heritage in the interest of covenant community. She takes all that she was born as, you got to feel me, and sets all that aside in the interest of covenant love. Look at verse 17. She goes further. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Two crazy things here. One, I will never turn back. I will die in relationship with you. But then she says, I'll be buried with you. And then the strangest thing that we can imagine, she says, may God literally, forgive me, damn me. 
if even death separates you and me, what does that mean? Where does that come from? In the ancient Near East, the belief was that families were together as families, not just in life, but also in death. That's why you had family burial caves or family burial plots. That's why you hear things like that when someone dies, that they're being gathered to their people or they're being gathered to their fathers. And so the belief is, is that when you die, you die and live after death with your family. Ruth is saying that I will be with you all of my life and also in eternity, that my whole identity has moved away from what I was born in and has now been declared by what I've been redeemed in. That an identity rooted in natural affinity, color, language, history, is not so much abolished by the identity of covenant. Everyone knew that Ruth was a Moabite when they saw her. But it is redeemed and repurposed within covenant love. That natural and even legal boundaries are redefined by covenant love. Everything is reshaped by covenant love. So this is our identity that we're called to. Here's our question, third point, is then how then do we become the church that God has redeemed us to be? We don't typically talk about racial reconciliation with this kind of radical language. We tend to be more situational. There is situational resolution. And situational resolution is important to achieve covenant community. But the overarching environment that it's pursued in is more than situational. It's covenantal. That there's something going on that's bigger than us. That as important as it is to deal with who I am, and, and, and where I'm from, and not to just pretend that it doesn't exist. There's something that redefines me that's based on something that God is doing and where God is going. We don't often feel the covenantal urgency for a gathered, local, visible, reconciled, multi-ethnicity in the church today. A local Visible multi-ethnicity. Not a, merely a principled, abstract, inward multi-ethnicity. But one that can be encountered and seen and lived in. Why is that, saints of God? What's the issue? Let me give you two reasons, and then we're going to push toward a close with some theological considerations. Here's the first. Feel me, please. We prefer our cultural identity over our covenant identity. Let me say it again. We prefer our cultural identity over our covenant identity. Now, I've said this kind of thing before. And typically, when I say this, we're all family in here, right? 
Is that, is that right? I'm, I'm not going to get run out. Okay, praise God. Praise God. Okay, I'm just a safe place. Okay, good. And little pitchforks back there or tomatoes that are going to fly. When I typically say this to or in the presence of my white brothers and sisters, they almost always go, exactly. Precisely. Why can't we just simply stop talking about race for crying out loud and let's just talk about Jesus? As if Jesus was our racial. As if Jesus was our ethnic. He was some kind of universal avatar. Without a context or a history. Why can't we just talk about Jesus? Because we're all just Jesus lovers. A good friend of mine is Matt Mullins. He he teaches uh, um, at Southeastern Seminary in in um, Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And he was here in Tampa about a year or so ago. We were sitting down, we were talking. And he and his wife, uh, they are a, a white couple, and they've adopted two black boys. And so they decided that they were going to, because of their boys, they were concerned about them, not wanting them to always be a minority. And so he said, well, he and his wife decided, we're going to find a black church. Now, Winston-Salem, they just say, we, we won't find a multi-ethnic church. That's just not going to happen. So we're going to try to find a black church that, that preaches the gospel. So that's what he said to me. <laughs> I didn't question the way, way he phrased it. I said, okay. <laughs> Fair enough. And, uh, and so, and, and Matt's a wonderful brother. I love him dearly and learn from him greatly. And so he and his wife, they find a church in, in Winston-Salem where the preaching was phenomenal. The scene was, was, was vertically oriented toward God. Great doctrine in, in, in the worship. And the people just loved on them. Loved on them and loved on them. Invited them out for coffee and had them over for dinner. And they were there for weeks and months. He and his wife was like, what do you think about the church? And, and he asked her that and she said, she said, you know, it's good, the preaching's good, the, the, the singing is good, the, the people are loving, but something just doesn't feel right. I'm not, I'm not sure what it is. Something's wrong. And they said, well, they couldn't figure it out, so they thought about it for weeks and months, and they kept, they said, well, how do you feel now? Do you feel better? I, I, I think it's great objectively, but something's wrong here. I don't know what it is. And so then one day it hit him at dinner, they were eating dinner. He said, oh, snap, I know what it is. <laughs> this church is a black space. It's not just black people. It has a black vibe. It, it connects with black history. It has a heritage. They, they've got a kind of lingo and shorthand for everything. It's a black space, and we're not black, and we don't feel at home there. And then they said, they said, but then it, it occurred to them as they were talking about it, is that black people are spending most of their lives in white spaces. And so they're at work, which is a white space. I mean, they're, they're, they go down to the city hall, which is essentially a white space. And, 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 and very often, they're living almost their entire lives in white spaces, except for when they go into a church. And then they resolved right then that we're never going to leave this church. 
and that nothing's going to change that is going to pull us out of this thing. But here's the thing, saints of God. There is such a thing, despite the fact that we say we don't have any biases and those kinds of things, we all, our cultural identity, it, it shapes our environment, and there is such a thing as a white space which not only provides comfort to white people, but you said this last week, but also allows white people to have privilege. For example, the privilege of being seen. People of color often get lost in white spaces. And then sometimes people are surprised when they discover, what do you mean? How, how are they getting lost? We're not trying to lose anybody. Great example, this is not black and white, but it's Greek and Jewish. It's in Acts chapter 7, I love, Acts chapter 6, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, where we see the church as a Jewish space. Or a Hebraic space. And there were Greek Jews who were there, but they spoke differently and looked differently. And they were lost. And it says in that text, I'm going to stay here long, that they complained. And what it says, they were feeling it. When our cultural identity begins to take over and begins to define our covenant space, for those folks who don't have that cultural identity, they feel it. And so what the church did in Acts chapter 6 then is they took a step back and said, hey, we've got to make sure that this place is not going to be a cultural space, but it's going to be a covenant space. And what did they do? Did they come back and say, hey, don't forget the, 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 the Greek widows. No, they made structural changes to balance out the default covenant thinking, the default culture of thinking of those who were leading in the covenant space. We need to, to bring in, as it were, forgive me for using the term, some affirmative action here. For most white evangelical Christians, multi-ethnicity or racial reconciliation is about inclusion into white spaces. It's about how do we diversify our space? How do we make our space, which is really the space, friendly toward others? Which is not a bad thing to do. It's just not the only way to think about this. But here's the thing, saints of God. Let me flip this thing. Black and brown Christians have the same assumption. So they usually oppose multi-ethnic churches because they believe it will create a drain on leadership from black-brown churches. You're going to take all the guys that go to seminary and bring them into your churches. That's their fear. Or that it will foster a hatred for black-brown churches. Or it will cause a disdain for black-brown culture. Or a desire to escape blackness or brownness or result in the marginalization of minority leadership where you take brothers who could be elders or pastors and simply turn them into, there's nothing wrong with this, 
for folks who maybe are serving as deacons or perhaps they're small group leaders. Or here's the real issue, that the core concerns of black, brown people will be lost in this covenant space. How are we going to think about our identity, saints? Here's the question for us. Is race greater than grace? Or is grace greater than race? And if grace is not greater than race, then saints, feel me, please, then it's not grace. Whatever it is, it may be culture, it may be tradition, or it may be heritage, but here's what grace does. I want you to feel what I'm going to say here, and I'm going to press on. Grace, when it's present, it revolutionizes everything. Praise God. Which creates... I'm not going to spend any time here, brother, because you dealt with the will last week, which creates a theological conundrum how we think about our Christian history. Because if, I'm off notes here, if the gospel really redeems and creates love and community, then the question becomes, what does it mean when it has not? So if I have orthodoxy, And do not have, which we talked about before, orthopathos or love, which is what grace does. Then something, saints of God, is fundamentally wrong. Here's the second issue. I'm going to press on here. I'm watching the clock. I know you went, you went 54 minutes last week, so, so, I'm, so I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm still inside that. <laughs> Here's the second issue, saints. We have lost sight that the core aspects of covenant identity is then covenant love, not covenant confession or profession. That what demarcates, what indicates authentic Covenant community is the presence of covenant love. If you have covenant community without covenant love, then you have covenant infidelity. Which means then you have a covenant problem with God. And so there is no safe place There is no authenticity. There is no sufficiency in covenant orthodoxy without covenant love. And so removing covenant love breaks covenant. And for white Christians, this often comes about one way we can see covenant confession or covenant procession with profession without covenant love has largely come about in the history of the church by weaponizing the gospel against the interest of black and brown people without any conviction. Reverend Gwen Turner was a Baptist pastor in Jackson, Mississippi in the 60s. 
And of course, you know, with the 60s, what was going on there was uh, a lot of the focus was on civil rights. You read that from that excellent letter last week from, 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 from MLK, his excellent letter from, the, from, from a Birmingham jail. Phenomenal. I agree with you. The brother didn't have any commentaries or anything. But Reverend Grant Turner's response, his response with all the stuff that was going on in Mississippi, he said, what Negroes need, what they simply need is the gospel to save their souls. Well, true. Everybody needs the gospel to save their souls. But he assumed that the great litany of black churches all over Jackson, Mississippi, weren't saving anybody's souls. At least not in the way he thought they should have been saving them because they had been saved rightly. They would not be asking for civil rights. Is it a gospel issue when a black man could not pull into a, a hotel to rest at night? Is that a gospel concern? We're not saying is that salvific. We're saying is it of covenantal importance? And if I don't love that way, if I'm unmoved, I'm sorry, what did James say in James chapter 2? That if someone would come to you and say, if brother needed some food, he said, brother, you know, why don't you go have, some, have a good meal? I'm going to be praying for you. James, what question did James ask? What was his question? He said, can such a faith save a man? If you, hear me please, if you hear nothing else, if you are unmoved by the living conditions of souls unborn and born, if you, if, if you are unmoved, by the fact that there are people who are trying to think through whether they should eat or get medicine. If you are truly pro-life, if you believe in the sanctity of life, then you believe that that life should live in safety, that that life should be fed. Can you not love those folks appropriately and love God at the same time? John says no. So there's a real covenant problem there, a real issue. But let me go further. Black and brown Christians are apparently laboring under the assumption that they can pursue gospel missions simply by focusing on their own redemptive needs and not considering the soul health of their white Christian brothers and sisters. Now let me explain that comment. There are brothers and sisters who are allied and aligned on a whole variety of things, doctrinally and practically, the way Pastor Jerry and I are. This, I'm sure if we talked long enough, we'd find some things that we disagreed on, like, for example, museums. <laughs> but I am convinced, though we all might discuss some doctrinal things, some little minor differences that because the spirit of God is working in the hearts of his people that his people tend to see the same thing on the things that matter this is what Paul says I I pray that you will agree that you'll be like minded 
that there should not be divisions on these things. So what does that mean then? That means that if I am a black or brown Christian and I'm in covenant community with someone who doesn't quite see it the same way as I do, my covenant commitment to them is not to run away from them and say, you know what, brother, you don't know Jesus at all. Good luck at the judgment. (laughs) And walk away. But no, we're to labor together in love and realize that in so many ways, our covenant commitment binds us together, ideally to one common redemptive outcome. Is that God wants us to showcase how love can overcome differences and distinctions. This is why Paul so often labored in his letters to bring Jews and Gentiles together. That's why he dealt with issues like what we see in Romans 14 and 15. He doesn't say, don't worry about that stuff. It's all about the gospel. Just focus on Jesus. He moves in there and provides behavioral guidelines. How should we think about this? We in Christ, saints of God, we are bound together. I'm wrapping up here. God has a vision for a multi-ethnic, multicultural church, i.e., a church not identified by its ethnic interests and cultural heritage, but a church identified by its ability to address and heal ethnic and cultural divisions through the power of the Spirit's presence in gospel community and covenant love. This can only be pursued and fulfilled by women and men like Ruth and Naomi. Two passages for us to consider in our closest in prayer. Ephesians 3, verses 10 and 11. Would you look at that text? I think it's behind me. I say to folks all the time that there's more involved in racial reconciliation than we think. The racial reconciliation is not a bonus for the church. Paul explains in this passage, he talks about the coming together of Jews and Gentiles, that it was God's intent, that it was his design. It was he was purposing to showcase the manifold wisdom of God to show the the wonders of his thinking, the majestic artistry of what he's done that is amazing is what God has done in creation. What he's done in redemption is even more glorious. That is the church that displays the wonders of God to the rulers and to the authorities in the heavenly realms. Who is that? If we were in Bible study, we would all agree, we'd talk about this, and we would say, well, that's really to the angels. And I would add to that, most of the time, when we see that phrase in Scripture, it speaks to the fallen angels. That it is the church that is God's response to the angelic rebellion. That it is the church that displays to the devils that you have lost. That it is the church 
where God flexes his might and says, despite all you have done, look at what I have done in this magnificent church that has brought people together from everywhere. It displays the wonders of God and it foretells your defeat because I brought these people to, to, to show you this is where I'm going, that I'm building the rest of the ages on what I've done in these people. That is the church. There cannot be division in that. If you click to the, to, to the next one, and, 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 and this is the last passage we'll, we'll look at. Peter says basically the same thing. He says that we then, that we are God's special possession. What this says is that we are God's special instrument. We are his special thing, his prize, his joy. The cherished thing. Why? Because we declare his praises, his glories. It's not common. It's not explainable. It's not natural. It is divine that the church is more than anything else a divine construction that is not something we can explain by looking at it. Even the angels look at it and go, I, I, don't, I, don't know, I don't know this. What is this redemption? What is this? It displays the glories of God, saints of God. We tend to believe that what we must show the world is what we have to say to the world which we do need to say to the world that there's good news what Jesus did on the cross for sinners. That's a big part of our mission. But our mission also entails our showing the world what a covenant love community looks like. Jesus said this is how the world would know that we are his disciples. Jesus said this is how the world would know that he was sent by the Father. Our love. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, that love is greater than truth. Feel me here. At the end of that glorious passage, Paul says, these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. And then, then, then what does he say? But the greatest of these is love. Is that love is greater than faith plus hope. That ultimately what God is doing is building a world, as Jonathan Edwards said, of love. This is where God is going. And racial reconciliation proves that where people are divided, not just by how they look, but by a history that has built a breach deep inside their psyches. That the gospel of Jesus Christ is able not just to bring them together for a fellowship meal, but to create one new community of love. That's what our God is doing. Let's go before our God. Father God, we marvel. But Lord, we know you're not calling us simply to reflect on this. Father God, we've not had time today, Lord, to talk about what now we must do. 
But it is important, God, that we understand that your affection, that our affections are always intended to flow out into action. I pray, God, that you would help Pastor Jerry and I and the leaders of Living Faith and the leaders of Gulf Coast would pray together about how the Lord might use even this uncommon bond to do uncommon things in Tampa Bay. That the world might know, despite the divisions that we see in our culture, that those divisions would not also then be found in your covenant community. That in the created realm, there might be uncertainty. There might be opposition and tension and hostility, but not amongst the people of God. May love and fellowship and, and, and mission rule the day. We love you, Jesus. It is in your name and for your glory that we pray. Amen. God bless you.